You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. It's like I picked the Psalms this morning, uh, which I did not do. You'll find as we go through this message. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And let's, uh, let's pray before we get started. Father, we are indeed here to, to praise you, to offer you our, uh, our praise to the best of our ability. And Lord, as we here today encounter your mercy, I pray, Lord, that uh, those of us who have been the recipients of your mercy would, in fact, praise you for this. We begin to understand in some small way how great is your mercy toward us. And Lord, if there's uh, people here, and I'm sure there are people here this morning that have never received your mercy, I pray, Lord, that they would do that, that they'd understand their need for that mercy this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to focus on verse 3 today. Last time I preached uh, from First Peter was in March. Uh, it hasn't been that long ago. Back then, I was looking at verse 3. So today we'll continue in verse 3. Jim, so Jim was right that I was, uh, I'm in the same passage. He was wrong that I'm going to finish it up. <laughs> not going to do that. That's going to be a while. We're going to look at the mercy of God. Last time we looked at the phrase, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at that mercy for which we are to offer our praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So we're offered praise to God here in verse 3, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wow. Today we praise God for his mercy. We want to under, understand and appreciate that, that great or abundant mercy of God. So we're going to start with this. What is mercy? There's several Old Testament and New Testament words that are translated mercy. A very commonly used word in your English Bible. But it depends on your translation. So this is a couple little side notes here. The word mercy appears 99 times in the NASB. Uh, 126 in NIV, 157 in ESV. 275 times in the New King James. So, you know, what's the difference? Does, is the NASB against mercy? <laughs> no, it's sometimes translated as compassion or pity. So if you put those three words together and you look for mercy, compassion, or pity, it's over 200 times in the NASB. So a sub-side note. The writings of John, the words mercy, pity, compassion in the NASB, occurs one time in all the writings of John. That's in the greeting, Second John. So think about John for a minute, all that you know about John. Why would he not use words like mercy, pity, and compassion? What word is John famous for using? Love. So that's when he's talking about mercy, pity, compassion of God, he uses the term love. Uh, John uses love 39 times in John, 26 times in First John. The next highest below those two is Romans, and it's used only 15 times. So he, he was uh, the disciple of love. 
Okay, so all that is to say the concept of mercy, pity, compassion, God's love, it's a truth that permeates Scripture. Uh, it's an attribute of God. The Holy Spirit wants us to understand it. He wants us to appreciate it and even emulate it. The word here in 1 Peter 1.3 is the Greek word eleos. It's almost always translated mercy. So what is mercy? Here's some, here's some uh, definitions. This is from Charles Hodge in his Systematic Theology. Quote, mercy is kindness exercised toward the miserable and includes pity, compassion, forbearance, and gentleness, which the scriptures so abundantly ascribe to God. End quote. This is from Vine's Expository Dictionary. Uh, mercy is the outward manifestation of pity. It assumes need, this is important, it assumes need on the part of him who receives it and resources adequate to meet the need on the part of him who shows it. Right? So I, I think it's best, the best way to understand mercy is to remember it has three components. Right? Mercy requires a recipient who needs it, someone who is in need of something. It requires someone who's capable of showing mercy, someone who has the resources adequate to meet the need of its recipient. So you have to have those two parties. And then you have to have an actual act, a showing of mercy, okay? To the, from the one who has the resources to meet the need to the one whose need is apparent and it meets the need, right? So let's think about if those things don't exist. If there is no need, there will be no mercy. Mercy is impossible if there's no need. If there's no one who has the resources to meet the need, there's no mercy. And then even if there are, if there is someone who needs mercy and there's someone who's capable of showing it, but it's never shown, obviously there's no mercy. So we need all three of those components. When Jesus talked about being a physician, he came to heal the sick. He said that the, that the well don't need a physician. So in, in, the, in those words, mercy requires somebody who is sick, somebody who needs a physician, requires a physician and it requires some sort of treatment, some application, some medicine. So those are the three things we're going to look at as we look at God's mercy. Right? And then we'll come back, uh, look through First Peter 1, and see the elements of God's mercy. All right, so first of all, is there anybody that needs God's mercy? Well, that's dumb. <laughs> we know that. We, we, but I want to hammer this home. We need God's mercy. And what is the need? We're going to look at a few aspects of the sinner's need. It's absolute, right? Our need is absolute, and it's manifold. It's multifaceted. We start with the doctrine of total inability or total depravity, which I talked about when I did the Reformation uh, message. The, the first need that man has is regeneration. He, he's otherwise, he needs to be born again. He needs to be made alive spiritually. Otherwise, he's incapable of responding to the gospel. Can't get started without regeneration, without the heart being softened. Right here in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has what? It's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's our first need, Okay. That's the first aspect then of God's mercy, our most immediate need, to be made alive so we can hear the gospel, to be born again. And that's our most immediate need, but it's certainly not our only need. We'll spend a little bit more time on, on uh, regeneration, but that's not our only need. We, we not only need to be made alive so we can hear the gospel, we need to be changed morally, right? We, we need to actually be changed. We're depraved sinners. We're champions of sin. We pile up sin. 
second by second, hour by hour, day after day, year after year, we pile up these sins, thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them. We need to stop, right? We, we need a change in us morally. We need, we need that. What is, let's think about it. What's God's standards for, standards for his image bearers? Let's think about the Ten Commandments, what, what those entail. Seems like I always talk about the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Wonder why. Absolute devotion to him, right? Absolute devotion to God. We have to refrain from any idolatrous or blasphemous thoughts, words, or deeds. Anything that is wrong about God, we cannot believe or utter or think or say. Uh, we, we're to be reverent. <coughs> to be reverent. We're not to be, we're to honor our parents, don't forget that. We're not to be murderous, whether actually killing someone or thinking murderous or hateful thoughts. We're to be faithful in marriage, sexually pure. We're not to be thieves. We're to be absolutely truthful. We can't even covet what belongs to someone else. That's just a thought. We can't even, can't even have those thoughts. It's a pretty high standard. Jesus made it very clear. This is Matthew 5.48. This is the standard. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We just have to be perfect, as perfect as God. That's the standard. Impossible to meet. Uh, when Jesus was asked who can be saved, he answered this way in Matthew 19. With people, this is impossible. It's impossible. With God, all things are possible. With, with people, this is impossible. We can't meet the standard. And so we have a need for mercy. We, we have a need. We need to be changed. We need the gift of repentance. We need an alien righteousness so we can be made fit for heaven. We're in desperate need. We're morally absolutely wretched, and yet we need to be perfect. But that's not all. Like we, we don't only need to be changed, made alive and changed. We've got to deal with the debt we've already piled up. Right? A criminal can't go into a judge and say, you know what, yes I, I, yes, I killed those people, sorry about that, and I'm not going to do that anymore, so I'll see you. Okay? It doesn't work that way. You've got, you've got the debt. It's got to be dealt with. We need a way to deal with the wrath of God. We face a wrath. It's a wrath we cannot turn away. Without the mercy of God, our destiny is eternity in the lake of fire. We need that to be dealt with. We, we have a need. There's no way out. We're, we're helpless because we're helpless to the face of God's wrath because we're without excuse. We're without excuse. There's nobody in the world, no one's ever been born in the world, that doesn't know that there's a God and doesn't know that they have done wrong before God. That's what the Bible teaches. This is Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they're without excuse. Everybody knows God exists. And, uh, Ray Comfort wrote a book that says, God doesn't believe in atheists. Right? God doesn't believe in atheists. There are no atheists in the Bible. Everybody knows God exists. 
and they know right from wrong. They've been given a, a conscience, that God-given grace of God, that warning system. Uh, Romans 2 tells us that. They have the law of God written on their hearts. Right? Now, we don't accept or reject anything in Scripture based on our own experience. understand that. But I can tell you, my experience as an unbeliever completely supports this. I used to like to go camping and, you know, go, grew up in southern Idaho. We have stars there, too, just like we do up here. Some places you don't, like, you know. So we'd go out and we'd, look, we'd climb up a mountain and we'd look at the stars. Yeah, okay, so I was, I was awed, sure, right? But I was scared. When I looked at the stars, I was frightened. I, there was a dread in me. Because I understood enough to know that something did this, and that something is very powerful and perfect, and I'm not. And I knew that the things that I did were wrong. I, didn't, I hadn't heard from the Word of God, but I had the law of God written on my heart. I was without excuse. That's part of our need. That's part of our need for mercy. We, we're without excuse. We can't stand before the judge. I didn't know there was a judge. I, you did. That is, you're without excuse. So what can we do? Well, apart from the grace of God, apart from God's mercy, we're, we're powerless to avoid or sustain the wrath of God. This is even kind of ridiculous to talk about. We, how could we sustain the wrath of God? What, how could we fight God and win? It's ridiculous. Uh, Job 40. I'm going to read you a little passage from Job 40. If you read the book of Job, right? Job and his friends are endlessly speculating on why God does things. Hmm, I think I know it's because of right? putting God in the dock. And then God answers. And his answer is spectacular. It goes for a lot of chapters, so I won't read all of it. A little short passage from Job 40. This is uh, God's word to, to Job. Or do you have an arm like God? Uh-oh. Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. Then, then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. The contrasted power between God and man is infinite. I, don't, I won't elaborate. We just have no means. We have no means to sustain or overcome the wrath of God. We can't satisfy the wrath of God. We can't deflect it. We can't survive it. We can't avoid it. We can't overcome it. We can't out-strategize Him. We can't escape Him. There's nowhere to flee. There's nowhere to hide and nowhere to run from the God of mercy, but from the God of wrath, rather, but to the God of mercy. That's the only place we can go is to the mercy of God. You can't escape. We need mercy. We need mercy for those reasons. We also need mercy because of our ignorance. We can't think of a way out. We, we, apart from the regeneration, apart from our minds being made right, we can't think of a way out, a way to deal with the wrath of God. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 2.14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they're spiritually appraised. So we don't even have a desire to turn from our sin apart from the mercy of God. We don't even have a desire to do so. But even if we did, 
We have no knowledge of how to do so. We're ignorant. We don't know the path to salvation. Again, apart from regeneration. Ephesians 4 tells us about the mental state of man. The effects of the fall on our brains are significant. In the, he refers to the mental state of the unbeliever as this, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. We're lost in ignorance. We're helpless. Okay, is that enough on that? You understand that apart from the mercy of God, we have a, a severe problem. We have a sin problem, a wrath problem. All right. So that first element of mercy is present. We have a group of people that are, which is everybody, that is in need of mercy. The second element is someone who has the adequate resources to meet the need. And we're going to look at a few of God's attributes and see how he has the resources to meet this great need. First of all, let's look at God's wisdom. God has wisdom. He has, he has wisdom to satisfy both his justice and his love. Right? This it seems like a conundrum. It's, a, it's an impossible situation to deal with. The sin that exists, justice requires, God's justice requires, that there be punishment for that sin. But yet God loves us. He wants us to have eternity with him. So what does he do? He's got these two attributes that appear to be in conflict. He has wisdom. He brings the gospel. That sin that has to be dealt with, there has to be punishment for that. The justice of God calls for that. And so, justice is meted out on the Savior. But because God has provided that Savior, He demonstrates His love for us. It's, it's a genius plan. It, it, only the wisdom of God could come up with something like this. Satisfying justice and love simultaneously. That's the wisdom of God. He had the wisdom to extend mercy. He also had the power to do so. He, he could not only satisfy the sin debt through the life of Christ, he could impute to us righteousness. He's also able to regenerate the human heart. He has the power to do all of that. He has the power to meet our need. It's displayed in the incarnation and the life and death and resurrection of Christ and also in the repentance and faith and sanctification of the elect. All of those things are the power of God. He has the power. He has the knowledge to complete the task. No errors or miscalculations with God. Don't, don't imagine that, that he's up there and uncertain. Like, oh, let's see. I hope that I can save this guy over here. That doesn't seem like it's working. So maybe I'll, I have to accept that loss over there, but I'm going to get two over here. Yeah, I got two over here. No. From the beginning, he knows who are his. He knows it all at once for all time. He's surprised by nothing. He's not surprised by the weather or by some election, uh, some new scientific discovery. Do you ever get scared when there's some new scientific discovery that claims to show that there were no camels at the time of Abraham or whatever the latest one is? <laughs> hey, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. God's not surprised by those things. He's not surprised by any act or thought or decision of, of any human being ever. Uh, he has the knowledge. His knowledge is perfect. That's why he always accomplishes the rescue. What he intends to do, he does. No mistakes, no accidents. 
He has wisdom, he has power and knowledge to meet the need. Now we're going to look at the method that he used, the sacrifice, the atonement. We'll see that that was effective and satisfactory. The son's life and death was sufficient to accomplish the salvation of all the elect. It is always effectual. It is good medicine. It always works. He had the resources in the form of this atoning sacrifice to meet our greatest need. That's why we have to get Christ right. We've started Christology in the Sunday school class. We we have to get all the elements of the gospel around Christ exactly right because it's so important. He is the atoning sacrifice. If if something is not sufficient about that sacrifice, then we're not saved. But he was was a satisfactory propitiation. propitiation. He he, He could turn away, satisfy the wrath of God. He was satisfactory for that. Think about your sin. Your uh, your sin is against God. We talked about this in Sunday school a couple of Sundays ago. Your sin is against God. That makes the offense infinitely horrible because the one against whom you sin is infinite and wonderful. Right? So the sin debt is enormous. It, it's my sin debt alone is incomprehensible. Multiply it by all the elect. So we needed an atonement. We needed an atonement of infinite value. And so to the cross came God the Son, God himself, an infinitely valuable sacrifice. We need, we need Jesus Christ to be God. He's the only one that could satisfy the sin debt. We also needed a human being, one that could represent us. As Adam represented us in sin, we need someone who could represent us as a member of our race in righteousness. And so to the cross came the man, Jesus, the son of Mary, descendant of David, of the tribe of Judah, a man, fully human, our representative. He died for his race of men. Okay, so we, we needed him to be fully God and fully man, and he was and is. We know that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was sufficient to satisfy the sin debt of all of its intended beneficiaries. We know that. How do we know that? Because the death could not hold him. The grave could not hold him. He had sufficient life within himself to pay the penalty of death for all of us, all of those he intended to pay it for, and yet live forever. So we know he was sufficient. He was up to the task. But we needed more than just forgiveness of sin. We need more than just to have our sins forgiven. You understand that? All, all that does is give us the standing of nothing. Uh, it, it gives us a standing of a leaf or a rock, a bird, a cloud. Yeah, if our sins are forgiven, we have no righteousness to recommend us. We're just ground zero, ready to start, right? So we also needed righteousness, and we get the imputed righteousness of the perfect life of Christ imputed to our account. That's what we needed. So I hope we've established a need for mercy. We've established that God has adequate resources to meet the need to extend mercy to us. But mercy isn't mercy unless it acts. Having the ability to do the rescue isn't the same as the rescue. So we want to look at the rescue. We want to see what the merciful act of God includes. And this is, we're going to be kind of glued to 1 Peter chapter 1 and skipping around a little bit in, in 1 Peter 1. So that was introduction. Enjoyed that. <laughs> In 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, 
the first act of God's mercy, we're referred to as chosen or elect. Now, some of you may actually be moved to verse 2, I don't know, but I don't remember. It's the word chosen or elect. In the original language, it's the first term that's used to describe us, the elect exiles of the dispersion. Elect. So the first, God, the first act of God is choosing us. That's God's determination to extend mercy to those of us, to those in lost humanity, uh, that he foreknows and predestines to be made in the image of his Son. Okay, the doctrine of election. That's the first act of mercy before time. In time, we observe the incarnation of the Son. God made flesh, a human being, an infinitely valuable divine human person. First Peter 1.3, remember we looked at this last time. I'm sure you remember. It was only months ago. It reminds us of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First Peter 1.3, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the person, the incarnation, the incarnated God. And then we see in the life of Christ, when we think about Jesus Christ, we see his active, what's called his active obedience. It's the perfect life of Christ. He, he sinned in no way, no sins of omission or commission. He was perfect in everything that he did. And so we receive, by imputation, his perfect righteousness. We see the passive obedience of Christ. That's the, the suffering, the, the death and resurrection of Christ. We see his passive obedience. We have suffering and death in our place. That's how we accomplish the forgiveness of sin, the, the payment of the sin debt, the atoning sacrifice of Christ. See, the resurrection of Christ, the power of God over sin debt, is now fully paid. That sin debt now fully paid, the power of God over death itself. First Peter 1.3, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's how we can have a living hope. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the guarantee of our future resurrection, our eternal life. The resurrected life of Christ, you understand, when the Bible says we have eternal life, it doesn't just mean life that goes on forever. It's a different, well, that's great. It's a different type of life. It's the resurrected life of Christ. It's that life that Christ has in him through the resurrection. That's what we participate in as believers. It's a a different life. In time, we're regenerated, we're made spiritually alive. Again, 1 Peter 1.3, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. We're made spiritually alive. We'll look more on that in a moment. We're also given the gifts of repentance and faith. First, repentance and faith. 1 Peter 1.3 refers to our living hope. Living hope. Uh, hope here in, in the New Testament is a confident expectation. It's the confident expectation of our future glory, our salvation obtained through the resurrection of Christ. This is our faith given to us at our regeneration. We're born again to a living hope. These things are connected. First uh, Peter 1.14 and elsewhere, if you look down to verse 14, tells us repentance is part of our salvation, a part of our ongoing sanctification. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance. Don't be conformed to those things anymore. You don't have to be. You've turned from those things. We share justification, our sins are forgiven, sin debt taken care of, our standing is secure. First Peter 1.4 says, We're born again to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So your salvation is secure as heaven itself. I can't wait to get to this. Well, obviously I can. I'm spending like you know six weeks on, on verse 3, but... This is, this is an amazing little part of this passage. You are protected by the power of God. Your salvation is secu- as secure as heaven. It, it, it's protected by the power of God through faith, through God-given living faith. 
you could argue the whole book is about our sanctification, being made more and more in the image of God, First Peter 1.15, just one example. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Our ongoing sanctification, the work of the Spirit in our lives. In addition to all of meeting the need, he goes above, well above and beyond that. We also get divine happiness, joy, a settled type of eternal happiness. It's part of the life of the believer. First Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This written to persecuted believers. Joy inexpressible. Okay, so we needed mercy shown to us. God was able to show mercy, and he did. Now remember that mercy is goodness shown to those in misery or distress. Our, our first need, our, the, mo- the most, I struggle to say this correctly, the, the clearest aspect of mercy that is shown to us is then regeneration. Because it's prior to regeneration when we are in our deepest need. And we are completely helpless. We, we, we can't even understand the gospel, so we need to be made alive. We need to be born again. That's our first need. And in Scripture, very often, mercy and regeneration are tied very closely together. We see it here again in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. These things are right together. Romans 9.18 refers to regeneration of some and not others. So then He has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He desires. So the contrast is between God's mercy, he has mercy on whom he desires, and God's hardening, he hardens whom he desires. Hardens some, shows mercy to some. So mercy is the opposite of hardening. All right, so what's the opposite of hardening? Softening, softening of the heart, softening of the human heart, that giving you a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, regeneration. That's the mercy of God. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So being rich in mercy, he made us alive. Mercy and regeneration tied together. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Again, mercy and regeneration tied closely together. And it's reasonable that it is, because that's the point of our greatest need. That's the first act of mercy in time, is God making us alive so we can hear the gospel. Then we receive all the other great benefits of God's mercy. So 1 Peter 1.3 refers to God's mercy as great or abundant, depending on your translation. I think those are the only words. Uh, great mercy or abundant mercy. And that word great or abundant, it actually means great in number. Not necessarily great in magnitude, although obviously the the magnitude of God's mercy toward us is infinite, but great in number. It gives us the idea that it's multifaceted. It's it's used in other places for words like many, often plentiful, or large as in a large crowd, a large number of people. So there's a lot of parts to it. There's a lot of parts to God's mercy. So we want to understand that because we want to give God glory for all the aspects of our salvation, everything that he does in mercy toward us, not just regeneration. The regeneration is itself kind of multifaceted. There's so much more. He just, there's so much more, so many different elements of our salvation. He, he's the source of all of them. All these things we looked at and all the things we haven't looked at. He's the source of our election. I want to be really clear on this. 
he doesn't look through time and take just take what he can get. He doesn't look through the corridors of time and say, you know, that person's going to respond positively to the gospel. So, okay, take that. They're chosen. That's not chosen. That's not choosing. That is not choosing. In any other context where we use that word, we would never call that choosing. Right? But the Bible says he chooses. He chooses. He does the choosing. Election is an act of God. Regeneration is not an act of the human will. It's an act of God. Faith is a gift of God. Repentance is a gift of God. Just as the incarnation of Christ is a work of God. The life of Christ was his work. The death of Christ was his work. His resurrection was his work. So is faith, repentance, and sanctification, and our ultimate glorification. The existence of heaven, it's all his work, and we ought to give him glory for all of it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why did God save you? There's a few good answers to that question, but one's right here. It's according to his great mercy. It's according to his mercy. So what does that exclude? It's not according to or because of anything on the part of the believer. No merit, no goodness, no righteousness, no works, no independent act of will, no self-generated faith, no no self-willed repentance, according to his mercy. Salvation is all of God. It's all ascribed to the mercy of God alone and for the glory of God alone. Okay, so what do we make of this? God's mercy is great. It's, it's abundant. It's comprehensive. It's closely tied to regeneration. We understand we had a great need. God alone had the power to meet the need, and God did meet the need in many and spectacular ways, continues to extend mercy to us. What do we do about that? What's the application? Well, the first application is given to us here in verse 3. Uh, same as last time, we're to praise Him. We are to bless God. We are to offer praises to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for His mercy. Right? Uh, that's why those songs, the songs that we sang this morning, I'm thinking about this, you know, for obvious reasons, and listening to those songs and just praising God. I had to stop singing. Mercy is spectacular. We ought to praise Him for it. But also, let's remember why the book was written. Uh, Josh asked me for a title for this series on First Peter. I don't really know how to do titles. I usually would say, First Peter is be my title. For, so that's not very creative. Uh, there's a lot of more creative titles. Jim's pretty good at that. Justin, is, Justin calls his uh, Christianity in Blue Jeans. really don't know what that means, but I think it's good. <laughs> You'll have to ask him. Uh, so I had to go back, and I, there, there was a quote that I read from Calvin's commentary. It says that this epistle was written to raise us above the world. And that's really what this epistle is for. It's written to encourage and exhort believers in suffering and persecution. We've talked about that before. To raise them above their circumstances, help them to focus on heavenly things, eternal things, focus on Christ. Um, so what's the application then in suffering and persecution of, of, of God's mercy? Well, look, when we remember God's mercy, we have to remember our humble estate. We remember where we were apart from God's mercy. And we remember his sovereignty in extending to us mercy and his power. And it's a clear demonstration of his goodness. So if we remember, if we keep these two facts straight, 
God is sovereign. And God is good. Everything else falls into place. It's a guarantee of heaven, isn't it? We don't need postcards from heaven and people who've never been there writing books about it. Right? We know that God is sovereign and God is good and He's promised us heaven. I can get you through a lot. I can get you through anything. Now, there are other applications that come to mind. Uh, I saw that Anna Botcher's here today. We sang a Botcher song in TNT. Ephesians 4.32. Anybody who was in TNT? You'll, as soon as I start reading, the, I'll read the King James Version. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Do, do, doodly do, 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 Ephesians 4.32. That was the song. Stays with you forever. I did not look up Ephesians 4.32. I just, you just know it forever from that song. That's one of the applications, right? We're to show mercy as we have been shown mercy. We're to offer help as we're able to offer help. So the lesson of the Good Samaritan, it's the essential of Christian love. But if we're going to meet people's needs, the greatest mercy we can show is to meet their greatest need. And the greatest need of people is the gospel of Jesus Christ, most of the people that you interact with. One of my favorite verses is uh, Luke 8, 39. I love the story of the demoniac of Gadara. Not because I like that kind of stuff necessarily, but what Jesus tells him. You remember the story, he's the one with the legion, and, and Jesus heals him, and he wants to go with Jesus. He's in his right mind now, and he wants to go with Jesus. And Jesus says to him this, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what he did, and that's what we're supposed to do. Return to your house, describe what great things God has done for you. We ought to be describing the great mercy of God, sharing the gospel with people, describing his mercy. So those are applications for believers. If you're an unbeliever here today, if you've never repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, a very, very different application. Right? Um, I don't know how else to say it. You're an object of wrath. You're going to hell. Your, your destiny is the lake of fire forever and ever, and it's the right thing for God to do. It's not excessive punishment. You've sinned against Almighty God, not once or twice. As I went through briefly the commandments, you've got to recognize yourself there. Have you ever told a lie? One sin is against God is enough to justify Him sending you to the lake of fire forever. You're in a bad position you're subject to the wrath of God, as, as were all of us apart from the mercy of God. What do you do? Receive that mercy. That's, the, that's your only hope. I don't know which door you're going to go out of, but don't go out of either one of them in that condition. You don't know what waits outside that door. You, don't, you may never again be this close. You may never again in your life be this close to the mercy of God. Man, somebody may have brought you here today praying that you would hear the gospel and you would turn in, in faith to Christ. This is your chance. This is your chance. Right? Look, and, and if, if you're facing judgment and I'm there, don't look at me. I am free from your blood. And so is whoever brought you today. They're free from your blood. Because right? you've heard the gospel. Right? I beg of you. Receive God's mercy and not His wrath. Re go to Him today as a child, okay? As a, as a repentant sinner. Don't face Him as judge. Don't do that. That's all I can do is beg you. 
Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your great mercy. It is, it's the center of our lives. It's the, the thing that, that we remember as we fall asleep, and it's the thing that, that brings us out of bed. It's, it's just great beyond our imagining. We know the state that we were in. Uh, we know that you had the power to do what you did, and we're so grateful that you did it. And again, I pray, Lord, for any that have never received your mercy. pray, Lord, they would have no rest. You'd give them no rest until they, once and for all, uh, decide what they're going to do about this man, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.